This is the Education Exchange with Paul Peterson. I am the senior editor at Education Next. Thank you for joining us. The Trump administration has announced plans to revise the stringent regulations that have been placed on for-profit colleges by the Obama administration. Among other things, these regulations require the colleges show that students upon graduation earn enough to justify their program of studies and don't default on their loans. Otherwise, the federal government is not going to allow the students uh, to use their Pell Grants, the uh, government subsidy to low-income students to attend these colleges. And student loans cannot be used for this purpose either. So many for-profit institutions are losing substantial enrollments and quite a number have closed their doors. What's the impact on students? Do students find alternatives? to these for-profit colleges that have been shut down, or do they not attend college at all? Three economists have now studied this question, Stephanie Cellini, Raj Jarolia, and Leslie Turner. And they're all with me here today to discuss the recent paper that they have produced. On, and so thank you very much, all of you, for joining me on the Education Exchange. Uh, Leslie, uh, you did not study the most recent program implemented by the Obama administration. Instead, you looked at an older federal initiative that uh, allows you to look at things in longer-term perspective. So what exactly did you look at? Leslie? Great. Uh, thank you so much for having us and uh, featuring our paper on your program. So we looked at um, regulations that were implemented in the late 1980s and early 1990s when um, sort of circumstances were in, in many ways similar to as they are now, there was a lot of attention being paid to the outcomes of for-profit college students. Uh, there were hearings within the Senate and um, allegations that sort of students within the sector were having a really hard time repaying their loans. And so the regulations that were developed and implemented would restrict access to schools where many of their borrowers failed to repay their loans. In particular, these regulations focused on what's called cohort default rate. Okay, this is the share of borrowers of federal loans who defaulted on these loans within a certain period of entering so, repayment. So what was the share? Was it 40%? Is that what I remember? So it's, it's, a, it's a bit more complicated than that. Um, there was actually two separate ways that schools could get into trouble. If in any given year, uh, over 40% of a student's borrowers had defaulted on their loans within two years of entering repayment, that school could lose access to all federal student aid, which includes both federal loans and Pell Grants, which are at the time and at present the major source of support for low-income college students that doesn't have to be repaid. But there was a second trigger that could lead schools to also get into trouble, and that would be if a school had three cohorts in a row that had at least 25% of the students default on their loans. And what's the overall default rate for within this two, three year period of time. Right, so the first year that we can break out um, these default rates by sector is the um, 1990 cohort, and so these students were tracked until 1992. And in um, 1992, 30% of borrowers who had left for-profit schools defaulted on their loans within two years. 
a little under 10% of students who had left public institutions, and around 6% of students who had attended nonprofit schools and borrowed student loans defaulted within two years. Okay, so the default rate was really a lot higher in the for-profit sector. It was sector. substantially higher, yeah, yes, yeah. that's correct. And, and, yet, and we know that the for-profit schools at that time were heavily supported by students who were receiving Pell Grants, and they were mainly disadvantaged minority students. Is that, is so, that correct? Yeah, that's largely correct. And this is, again, similar to um, the, the setting that we see today. So students who attended for-profit schools, both back in the, the late 80s and early 90s, and in more recent years, were disproportionately likely to be older, non-traditional students, um, female students, minorities, and um, they were disproportionately likely to receive so federal grants and loans. So we might expect that these students are going to not go to college because maybe the for-profit sector is serving an underserved population. So that's the question that you really took a good look at. So how, how did you do this? What was the strategy for trying to find out what the impact would be? How, how would you try to measure this? Right. So what we did was look at when these um, cohort default regulations went into play and how they affected both schools that um, received sanctions because they had really high student loan defaults. But in addition, we looked at whether there were spillovers or whether there were enrollment effects on these schools' local competitors. So let's take a, a county, which we use as a proxy for a local higher education market. So you're assuming that every little higher education market is exactly the size of a county, which is a little bit of an exaggeration perhaps, but it's probably a... So a starting point. That's right. a great. Right. That's a great point um, to deal with this concern because we know counties are of all different sizes, and you know many people cross county borders. We also consider an alternative definition of a market where we take each school and draw either a fifteen or a thirty mile circle around it, and then we look at all of the schools within that circle and we consider those schools to be sort of competing for the same set of students. Right, right. So you and we actually get similar results. Similar results. So, yes. so the idea is you're going to compare counties where you had lots of defaults, or at least a default, with the counties that did not have any defaults or fewer defaults. So that's, yes, that's, that's pretty much what we do. And they're spread out all over the country. I looked at your map, and your map Correct. shows that this is not concentrated in Alabama or Idaho or someplace like that. You can find this... Across the nation. Sanctioned across, across the nation. Yes, so the, the thought experiment that we have is we take two counties that look really similar in terms of their population, the number of schools that are present, and we compare the outcomes in overall enrollment, enrollment in public schools, unsanctioned for-profit schools, when one county has, say, one more for-profit school sanctioned. So, you know, one county has two for-profit schools sanctioned, one has three, how does enrollment in the county as a whole and within these different sectors change so in the following years? So one of the things that you're looking at is, is if a, if a for-profit gets sanctioned, do the other for-profits take a hit as well? And I think you find that they do, right? Yes. So this gets into our results. Um, what we find is that in the five years after a for-profit school is sanctioned, its enrollment drops by around 100 students a year. But we also see that local for-profits that weren't sanctioned but are in the same market 
lose students as well. Okay, they about, lose uh, about how many? On average, about thirteen students. Thirteen. A year. So it's not nearly as big, right? It's it's if if you get sanctioned, you're going to really have to worry about survival, right? And, yes, and in fact, in the five years after a, a sort of the average for-profit school is sanctioned, about forty percent of them close. So we had a lot of exit from so, this market. Uh, a hundred. Uh, I'm trying to get my head around the hundred. Is that ten percent of? You know, what's the average size of these schools right. that are getting sanctioned? So that's about a 40% decline in enrollment relative to the average size of these for-profit schools. And the 13, 13 student reduction that we see in the, the unsanctioned local for-profit competitors seems relatively small. But we have to take into account that for any given school that got a sanction, it didn't just have one competitor, okay? On average, it had around 13 or 14 competitors. So we have to take into account, you know, each of these schools oh, okay. is so there's quite a bit of, of, of loss in the for-profit sector across That's the board correct. within the county. That's correct. Now, so then how about the community colleges and the junior colleges? What happens to them? That's a great question. So on average, a community college that has one more for-profit school in its market sanctioned gains about 51 students per year. And in a given market, there's a little over two community colleges. So that's around 100 students. And, and how many do they have ordinarily? Is that so these are large schools. Yeah? Yes. So um, this is around a 5% increase in a given community college's enrollment. It was, it's not negligible. It's not negligible. 5% is noticeable, but it's not massive. Right, right, right. It's not a huge change from the community college's perspective. But what we sort of calculate is given the number of community colleges that have one for-profit competitor sanctioned or one or more, um, all of the students that we see leaving college because of that sanction from the for-profit that is sanctioned, we can say probably end up in a community college. So there's a big migration from the for-profit to the public sector. Right. Uh, now, does it mean then that we don't have to worry about these students? Is this that, yeah. that there's yeah. really nothing to worry about here? So, that, so that's a great question. So let me just sort of, because there's a lot of moving parts here, let me just sort of reiterate our, our main findings. We see sanctioned for-profits lose about 40% of their enrollment, 100 students. We see unsanctioned public competitors absorb basically those 100 students, but we also see in for-profit schools that were not sanctioned an enrollment decline. So overall, within the county, there's about a 3% decrease in total enrollment because there are these negative spillovers to unsanctioned So should we worry about that? I mean, I, I mm -hmm. think that comes up. Is this a, is this a, a big loss to society as a whole yeah. that you're not getting as many students enrolled yeah, in yeah. higher education? So we are it? getting about a 3% enrollment decline. And it really, you know, this is a hard question to answer given the, the limitations on the data we have during this period. Um, we, it depends on why we think these unsanctioned for-profit competitors are losing students. Maybe this is because students see these sanctions being implemented and that provides them some sort of information about the quality of schools in this sector. And they're updating their expectations about whether this is a good idea and deciding, no, it's really not a good idea for me. And we can try and get at this by looking at whether these negative spillovers are bigger when schools are more similar in their program offerings. 
So when a, a local school that is a for-profit that offers business-related programs, if that school is sanctioned, are there bigger negative effects on local for-profits that also offer business programs that aren't sanctioned? And in fact, we do find some suggestive evidence that that's the case. Um, which we could interpret as saying, this is sort of giving more information to students about what programs and what schools might be good to go to and might be bad. The other thing that we do is we look at countywide, how does the number of student borrowers change? And how does the number of students who borrow and default change? Yeah, but before change? we get to borrowers, I'm just, you know, this whole thing is focusing on enrollments, but we know that enrollments at the junior college level, whether it's in the for-profit sector or the non-profit sector uh, or the public sector, um, it, it, a lot of those students drop out within six months. So that's correct. Um, you know how much? I mean, it's really hard, isn't it, to sort of figure out is this is this three percent really a very meaningful number at all, given the fact that we've got maybe half of these students dropping out at some point within the first year of their attendance. Right, so it's, it's, it's hard to say what the student outcomes are with the really limited data we have. But if we look at this from the public sector's perspective and the amount of public dollars that are going out the door, um, at the very least, this is reducing the amount of public dollars being spent. So in terms of loans that are not being repaid or in terms of Pell Grants that are going to students who um, would drop out of right, school. Right, but that has to be offset by the increasing public expenditure through the mm -hmm. fact that they're going now to a public junior yep. college, which is being subsidized by the That's state legislature. That's a great question, and I will hand it over to my colleague, <laughs> Stephanie Cellini, who has Stephanie. done a lot of work on comparing the private and public so costs and benefits in the public What is the, what is the size of the, of the state subsidy to your junior college system? In recent years, I believe the size of the subsidy is around $7,000 or something per student when I've done this in a previous paper. And how much do students pay on average to go to a junior college in the, in the public sector? It's about $5,000 or less right now. Uh, maybe, I think it's about $4,500 on average to go so to So it's a, a total of around eleven. That's right. 12000 something right. in that range. And, uh, and how much are, were these for-profits charging? They're charging around $15,000 per student right now, per year. Um, so those tuition costs are, are quite high. They're much higher for so, the students in the for-profits. Right. So what we really don't know is whether it, I mean, it all comes down to is were those for-profits actually providing a higher quality experience than it's available in the junior colleges? That's right, and I do have some work on that topic as yeah, well. Yeah. Um, so, and and my work has shown looking. My most recent paper looks at these less than two year colleges and these programs that are like certificate programs in the public and non and for profit colleges, um, and 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 not only my research but other research has also shown that the earnings gains to attending a public institution for those types of certificates and two year degrees uh, is higher in the public sector. Those earnings gains are higher than they are in the for profit sector. Um, so, and then students are taking on more debt, of course, in the for-profit sector as well. So, 
um, when you put those together, um, it seems like it's possible, at least, that you know having this drop in this county is, level this enrollment. This is win-win, that, or whatever the losses are in enrollment, the, there's uh, there's compensating gains that we should Correct. be grateful for. Yeah. So for uh, now I noticed in your graph today, in your uh, presentation to the group, that the the the, uh, the number of sanctions went way down after. 1999 or something like that. There was a lot of these sanctions in the 1990s and they sort of disappear after 2000. What what happened? Did, was this so effective that these for-profits then, you know, got their act together and started doing what they were supposed to do from the beginning and the bad people were pushed out of the business? What's your, why did we get this big change in the sanction rate? That's a great question. So, as I mentioned earlier, following a, a sanction in the for-profit sector, about 40% of these schools closed. So we have this huge number of schools just exiting from higher education altogether. We also see a lot of for-profits that stop participating in federal student aid programs. And once they leave, we can't really say, did they remain open, did they close, but they're no longer receiving federal grants and loans. And so after the beginning of this, this um, round of sanctions, we just see a giant drop in the number of for-profit schools, enrollment in the for-profit sector, federal student aid dollars going to for-profit schools, and the, the sort of enrollment, um, loan dollars, Pell Grant dollars uh, reaches a low point around um, 2000, yeah. and, and then starts to rebound, um, and increases again between 2000 and reaches a peak at 2011. So, th so is this a new rebirth of an entire new sector or is this the old sector coming back again? I mean, this is you know a great question and I think when we go around interpreting our results, we wanna know what does this mean for the current policy environment. We do see a lot of similarities in that there have been um, congressional hearings um, that look at allegations of fraud and abuse in the sector. We saw these same types of hearings going on in the late 80s, early 90s. We see rising student loan default rates within the sector. And this, I think, is what led to the, the push for the gainful employment rules that um, sort of there was not great student outcomes, not in every single for-profit school, but in sort of more for-profit schools than in other sectors. So what are the new regs that were put down by the Obama administration, how do they differ from these regs back in the Clinton years? Sure, so the gainful employment regulations um, are looking at, uh, they're, they're now holding schools accountable for the debt to earnings ratios of their graduates. Um, so it's not the default rate. Not the default rate, correct. It's now they've gotta be earning X number of dollars if they borrow why number of dollars. That's right, that's right. So. Yeah, but how, why should a college be held accountable for the earning rates of its students? So I think the concern is that if you look at the outcomes of borrowers in recent years, it may be the case that very few students are defaulting within two or three years, but if you look five years out, default rates rise substantially, and even among students who don't default, a really high share of them haven't even paid down a dollar of their debt. And so the gainful employment regulations, my, my interpretation is that they were trying to come up with a better way to figure out how well are these borrowers who are receiving vast sums of federal money, how well are they doing? Is there a better way to measure this? Yeah, but the percentage of, uh, the, the amount of the debt for many, many students, I, you know the percentages, uh, 
it's not that big, right? It's around $2,000, $3,000 for lots of... So median debt among borrowers nowadays is about 30000 20 to $30,000. The median is? Yes, oh, that's I'm... correct. So there are a large number of students who go to school for a semester, have a small amount of debt. Yeah. Um, and... But, you know, there's... How about the mode? The mode? 10,000. Yeah, at least 10,000. 10, so, so, yeah. there, so there are not that many who have just minimal debts. There's... So, you know, again, the median's about twenty dollars to $30,000. Yeah. And, of yeah. course, when you read newspaper stories, you would think everyone has a $100,000 loan, um, which is a lot worse than $30,000. But $30,000 is not anything to sneeze at. Right. And the cohort and default rates would sort of treat... Students who have not made any payment on their loan for three years because they have, they've deferred their loan or they've applied for what's called forbearance or they've participated in one of the current income-based student loan repayment plans, we treat those students the same as students who have totally paid down their loan debt. And I think what the GE regulations were trying to do is say, these are really different circumstances. In one case, the student is debt-free and the federal government has received all its money that it lended out. In the other case, the student still has this debt hanging over them. They haven't made any progress. And these, these dollars have not so been So why repaid. is the Trump administration wanting to withdraw these regulations? What's the, what's the case that they make? It's a great question. A general anti-regulation case, perhaps. Um, that these well, they schools... must have specific arguments. No. I, I, the general argument is that these regulations are not sufficient to protect students, or they will not, they will regulate the sector without protecting students and potentially restrict choice. Well, I will say this, that they're giving you, if they do put through new regulations, a fantastic new research opportunity. <laughs> you will be able to estimate the impact of those regulations before and then after. And uh, so whatever happens downstream, you have some work to do. And thank you very much, uh, Stephanie. And thank you very much, Leslie, uh, for joining me. And Raj, thank you for uh, joining us as well, though you were a silent partner in the discussion here. And uh, this was uh, just a great opportunity to talk with you about a very important policy question. Thank you so much for having us. Thank you so much. So this is the Education Exchange. I am Paul Peterson. Please join me every Monday at noon when a new podcast is released. Thank you for joining me on the Education Exchange.